Hey, listen, uh, we are going to do a segment every Saturday in February. Uh, we're going to hunker down into this bizarre concept called love. Uh, after walking a thousand kilometers on the Camino de Santiago during a three-month vow of silence, I came to the conclusion that I know very little about something I love. Love. So I've decided to reach out to various love gurus for help, and today's love gurus are Harville and Helen Hendricks. The website is harvillandhelen.com, and uh, this is their second time, well, Harville's second time on the show. Helen, I think we, we ignored you last time. I'm so, so sorry about that. Will you forgive me? <laughs> Oh, I do. What a vulnerable, um, loving person you are. I, 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 you know things about love, which is being willing to be vulnerable. So yep. it's an honor to be on today. Well, thank you. Thank you. Harville, can you tell me the top two things you love the most about Helen? Uh, well, let's see. One is that Helen, uh, gosh, it's hard to get to the top two because one of them is that she has such an amazing heart um, and uh, such positive energy. And uh, added to that is an enormous creativity, uh, which is the expression of a very deep intelligence. Plus, she's absolutely gorgeous physically. Stop it. Easy, you guys. Come on. Come on. Um, uh, it's how- hard to do one because the, the one has four parts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about parts. After talking about how beautiful your wife is, I don't want to talk about parts now. Do you mind, please? Okay. Uh, <laughs> so listen, uh, I've got a lot of questions for you because I'm a love junkie. I'm an Enneagram 4. I'm, I'm I don't know, I'm sensitive to rejection because I was adopted. I don't know. I, I'm just... I'm, a, I'm just a sappy love muffin. Oh, this is getting worse. i got to stop describing myself. Anyway, so so let's go right to the basics about the human condition and, and this thing falling in love. I've never been happy with that phrase, falling in love, because it suggests that it's sort of this gravitational oopsie-daisy. Which means, which means there's no real choice involved, and which means, oops, I fell out of love as well. So, yeah. so I mean, uh, Harville, what's your take on, on that? Well, that's, the answer to that question is actually what Helen and I have been engaged in uh, in a conversation since 1977 when we met and began to talk because we were both divorced and so forth. And so we've been talking about that for a long time. And so the short answer to that is that our research and uh, experience is that people, uh, whether they like the word fall in love or not, people do tend to experience an intense uh, emotional attraction, intense emotional attraction to certain people who uh, are similar to the caretakers uh, with whom they live when they were little and especially people whose traits are similar to the negative traits in those caretakers. And by negative traits, we mean the caretakers not responding to the infant's needs, that that leaves a deficit and that deficit creates anxiety. And, and the anxiety is about whether they're going to survive. And since that's not resolved in the relationship with uh, caretakers and most caretakers, it's pretty much of a universal experience. The brain goes looking for 
that um, resolution uh, all through life and does it in a variety of ways. But the biggest return to uh, getting those needs met is in adulthood when you are in your search and find mission and you do, in fact, have this romantic attraction to someone. And that's what we call the, the love attraction. That is the falling in love. It's a, it is an, an amazing experience of, of, of our original sense of being connected, which got ruptured in childhood, and we're looking for it to be restored in adulthood. And it is restored in adulthood with somebody with whom it can't be sustained because they're similar to the people in childhood with whom it was not sustained. Okay, so, so what I what I just heard you say, Harville, what I just heard you say was, if I grew up with a mom who wasn't real flowing with affection, I'm gonna I'm gonna seek out a woman who's not real flowing with affection because my brain says that it should be the other way around. It should be like, well, I didn't get the affection from mommy. So if I'm going to marry somebody, I'm going to marry someone that's going to give me some affection, dadgummit. It certainly is a logical answer. <laughs> it just so happens, it appears that the brain does not operate on logic. Uh, it operates uh, more instinctually. Oh, yeah. So what the brain needs is the, is the satisfaction of the affection and the flowing of affection with somebody um, that's similar to the caretaker from whom you didn't get it because the brain is stuck in the past. And so you marry somebody in the present who's similar to somebody in the past to get from them what you didn't get in the past, which means you won't get it from them in the present, which means you'll move back, you move then into the power struggle, still trying to get it. And so the goal of life uh, in intimate partnership is to resolve that issue in adulthood so that you can get in adulthood what you didn't get in childhood. So that means moving from the romantic aspect of love to uh, a lot of different words, mature love, real love, or whatever. And real love is where you have a relationship where those needs uh, are met or the deficit is not activated. Right, right. Wow. Wow. Okay. First of all, I officially have a headache. Thank you for that. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just so interesting to chase these rabbits. So let me let me bring this back into 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 sort of uh, anecdotal terminology. Uh, Helen, what is it that you didn't get that helped you end up with Harville? Oh, such a now, Helen. You're going to have to confess in public. All right. Is that a ba- is that an unfair? Oh, that might be an unfair question. Is that feel free to say? Oh, I'd rather not talk about that. I mean, f- seriously, it's just that I'm trying to put put it like grab onto the handlebars and on on some of these yeah. concepts. Oh, I'm happy with, uh, with with dealing with that because we do talk about it in public. Okay, that's part of our part of our credibility is that we do share that we didn't do it perfectly, and we also followed the followed the psychological dynamics just like everybody else. Yeah. Okay, well, Helen, are you able to answer that for me? So my parents would uh, tell me they loved me, but there was no emotion to it. And um, and I didn't feel loved by them. And when both either of them died, I didn't cry, I didn't miss them, because I didn't bond to them. There was no emotion. And um, I, when I met Harville, I learned he wanted to write I asked him what he wanted to do. If he could wave a magic wand, he said, I want to write a book on marriage. Oh, wow. I ended up proposing to him. 
I thought just we, we he was divorced, I was divorced. So um, my first husband got all wrapped up in the business world and I didn't care about business. Wow, a man who wanted to write a book on marriage. So I proposed <laughs> and he said yes. And all he did was write footnotes in our marriage. <laughs> he wrote about love, but he wouldn't do it. <laughs> and you know, he, I'd go, honey, why don't we go out for a romantic evening? He'd go, I'm too busy. You know, I've got to read. You know, so I did, and so I needed someone to be emotional. Yeah. And but and so I had to figure out how to trick Harville into being more emotional with me. Wow. You hold on, hold on a second. You you can't leave the story there. You had to trick him into being emotional with you. I've got to hear more about that, Helen. Well. Yeah, well, or make deals or invite him into it. And he had to stretch because what he was missing in his own personal development was feeling. And and then for me, oh, my goodness, all I could do was feel. I couldn't think very well. Through my sentences were like 50 words every sentence. I couldn't be succinct. I couldn't say something simply. Poor Harville. I was just flooding him. With, with emotions and words. So yeah. I had to learn to think yeah. and speak succinctly, and Harville had to learn to feel. And now we're both more, um, we have sides of ourselves that we wouldn't have had we not had to stretch into what the other needed. Did you, uh, Harville, did you guys ever break up or come close to breaking up? Because you'd already been divorced, both of you, and the statistics say, well, the second marriage, you're, the odds are you're, you're, are greater that you're going to, that, that one isn't going to work either. So did you guys come close to to ending it, ever? Yeah, we did, and uh, and Helen has a great way of talking about that, so I'm going to throw that to her. Nice. Helen, you're on. Uh, I've asked Harville if I could speak publicly about how hard it was when we were struggling on our issues, and I finally got him to go to a therapist because I knew the therapist could fix him maybe. And then uh, the first one we fired, and then the second one we fired, and the fifth one um, fired us and called us the couple from hell. <laughs> so that left us nothing to do but go to a divorce lawyer. And we actually, it, it drew, and I'm being lighthearted about sure, it, but sure. it really, really was sad. We announced to the community of therapists that uh, we've talked a mago to, we announced to them that we didn't know how to do this, and we brought our kids together and told them we were divorcing. So um, we actually were able to turn it around, thank God. But it's it was the such a nadir for me, a terrible time in my life. But now we're able to tell others, if you think you're having difficulty, believe me, we did too. Mm-hmm. And you can, so so we, we feel like any couple can turn their relationship around. Oh my goodness. Okay. Oh, this is not helping at all because it's what it's doing is it's giving me 37 more questions as opposed to, you know, helping me with the answers, but I, I, I mean, Harville, at what point do you end a marriage? What, have you ever said to a couple, well, you know what, guys? Yep, you're right. It's time to put a bullet in it. Um, actually, I have not. Um, 
uh, my theoretically, uh, yes, there are some marriages that should end, and usually those are marriages where uh, there is no capacity for thinking, like there's brain damage, or there may be such intense um, mental illness that nobody can access their, um, you know, their prefrontal cortex, and uh, so forth. Uh, but given the a normal brain in a normal relationship. Um, the uh, what we've experienced, and we've been now at this uh, for um, see, we've been married 37 years, and I had a 10-year clinical experience prior to that. So there's that 47 years of working with uh, people. In the last 37 years, uh, ever since I've known Helen, uh, working exclusively with couples, uh, our position has been, and what we've seen is there is a way through. And, uh, and the way through is what we have been talking about. You have to get clear um, what you didn't get, what your partner didn't get, and you all have to agree to give it to each other. And so we now know how to help people do that in about 10 minutes. Uh, we used to take you know, eight or 10 sessions, but now we know how to help them do that in 10 minutes so that they can focus on once you get clear that it's uh, like more warm to something, what behaviors would execute that, would put that into operation, and then you would specify what those behaviors are, and they're going to trigger your anxiety because you're not accustomed to doing that. Just like I was emotionally unavailable to Helen, I'm, I'm an intellectual who was emotionally unavailable, or a left brain person who wasn't very much in touch with his right brain. So I had to learn to move out of, not move out of cognition, but to add my right brain or affect or emotion to my exchanges with Helen. Well, you know, I don't do I don't do emotions. I grew up on the farm where emotions were not useful, but um, they were necessary in this relationship. So it's a matter of growing into emotionality and learning how to do that. So we uh, we've seen couples, and in fact, when we got Imago clearly organized as a systematic system, uh, we found that the uh, divorce rate in the culture for most therapy was, I mean, the success rate for most couples therapies was about 25%. We moved up to about 95%. Wow. And, and, the, and the reason we could do it was we learned how to identify the, the point of the impasse and not just spend all, a lot of time exploring and analyzing and so forth. Identify the point of the impasse. So you can work on the impasse. And when you, when you do that, then it's like a lever. You, you can finally begin to put uh, the emotional need into behavioral terms so it can be actually acted upon, and people can then move through that. So the only um, time I would say to a couple um, is if, if you're not going to be committed to the process, uh, then you have two choices. One is continue to live in the hellish marriage you're in or get out of it, but that's your choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, then that sort of, I guess, I guess sort of answers this question for me. And, and Helen, I'll throw this one at you. Do you think that a relationship can really work if only one person is willing to work on it? Absolutely. What? Absolutely. Oh, and it's it's very powerful. Um, if you're the one that decides to do it. Um, so there, there are two things I would mention about that. Um, first, um, if my partner doesn't want to work and I do, 
I learned skills that will help, and I modeled them for my partner. I just do it, and my partner will notice that I'm doing it. And over time, um, they'll get curious. But another thing I would say to someone who says my partner doesn't want to do this is that if a birthday comes up or an end-of-the-year holiday or Christmas or whatever, Hanukkah, um, or Valentine's Day, um, ask your beloved to go to a workshop or, or go to four sessions of therapy or whatever, but say it in this way, um, quote, I want to learn what I can do better in our relationship. And it would mean a lot to me if you'd go to this workshop or go for this series of therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's, there's, yeah, I think a healthy marriage is an intelligence test. Um, you can, you can figure out, I, I am totally with Harville. I think, I think once two people love each other enough to commit, um, that's holy, that that's a, that's a sacred bond they have. And there is a way to work out any difficulty, and you should never, never give up. Okay, there's something that you said that made my head turn to one side. Uh, I think I heard you say that if you're in a marriage, you're in a, you know, and and the one partner is not really, you know, towing the party line or doing what they need to do or making the effort or whatever, that the other partner can just continue on and, as a matter of fact, uh, adapt or model things or behaviors that you, that they would like their partner to kind of pick up on and eventually the partner will pick up on it and so i think first of all did i summarize that horribly accurately <laughs> or not That's, that, yes that was a summary okay so but here's the fear let's take uh you know acts of service to quote gary chapman in the five love languages um well i want my husband to vacuum more and do the dishes more and do the laundry more and so what i'm going to do is i'm going to do the vacuuming and the dishes and the laundry all the time and my husband will pick up on it and he'll do it i think what happens is the husband doesn't realize that it gets taken advantage of and next thing you know it it's really backfired on them what am, what am i missing on this one well you make a really good point uh, the example um, you gave is something that no one would want to get involved in. But the person who's vacuuming, have they really tried to ask um, their partner uh, in a succinct, uh, simple way um, for what they want in their relationship? I, I think one of the most important things um, is we find things we don't like in our partner and we criticize them and that's not going to get you anywhere. Yep. And the power is learning to ask for what you want in a way that we call with cinder responsibility. Ask in a way with a calm voice tone, a calm look in your eye. Um, you know, your use of humor is so charming, Drew. Oh my goodness. And to bring humor into your relationship, start tickling your, your partner. <laughs> They're ticklish, then ask them for something or bring joy into the relationship. And um, there's a way to do it. Uh, uh, one more thing. 
a, a koan that we have is for a couple to live shifting from judgment to curiosity and to wonder. So instead of judging huh. your partner for not wanting to vacuum or whatever, judgment, judgment, you might want to ask them, why is it that they don't want to do things around the house? Or why is it, but in a genuine way where you're really curious and when they tell you, then you can say, well, is there more about that? I'd like to understand. Hmm. And, and learn learn to really listen to your beloved. Well, that's that's really good. For, it's a move from judgment to curiosity, uh, and, and that requires something, and, and what it requires is is question asking, which I think is, is a rare thing these days because we're all so accusatory because we know, uh, we just know that we know, and we come to the conclusion before anybody, you know, um, there's pride and ego and all of that kind of stuff. But now, now we're into this aspect of listening. And Harville, uh, I don't know about you, but it has been my experience, uh, having been a pastor and as a hospital chaplain and as a talk show host who, you know, this is what I do. I ask questions and then I love listening to the answers. Harville, we, this is not a world filled with great listeners, in my opinion. Yeah, <clears throat> right. Um, it, it's true, not, not filled with uh, great listeners. And one uh, one comment I'd like to make on the preceding thing before we get off of that, please, is is that um, when one person is uh, is not going is not participating in the relationship, and the other person uh, wants to stay and does want a better relationship, what Helen was saying about, I just want to to crystallize. She she began to talk about the emotional quality of the interactions in the relationship. And that's very different from transactional behaviors like uh, cleaning the bathroom or washing the dishes or making up the bed. Uh, what, what has to happen is the relationship that Helen's talking about means that the relationship is safe. And the, the energy that I send toward my partner who is not wanting to, you know, do his share or, or actually not wanting to, to be relational, the energy I send to them is the one of safety, the one of acceptance, one of appreciation, and it's a nuance. There's an absence of negativity, absence of judgment. And when you do that, you become different. You, you cease to be a polarity, and, and you cease to be a part of the polarization. And one pole changes the energy, the other pole has to change its energy. Hmm. Now, it may spin out of the relationship, but it usually becomes curious and says, what is going on? or may begin changing their behavior because they feel safe enough to move toward rather than away. So I just wanted to No, add that's that's to that. really good. Really yeah. good. Yep. Transactional transactional behaviors tend not to help. Uh, the only thing we have found ultimately helps is zero negativity and affirmations. Um, and then then you can go say, "Okay, now I'll go clean. Now I would like you to you know do something." Hmm. Um, but about listening, um, the, uh, the, uh, the way we uh, like to talk about this is, um, is that we say that talking is the most dangerous thing people do, uh, and people are talking all the time, not knowing that they're dangerous, and listening is the most infrequent thing people do. And people who do research on such things as that, which we uh, read in their research, we haven't done this research ourselves, say that the accuracy of listening is about 13 percent 
and that's in a resting state. And if you're disturbed, it's zero, which means that the possibilities of conflict arising simply out of misunderstanding are 100% if there's any tension and 87% if there's not. So even if you try to listen, you, uh, you, uh, your accuracy rate um, interferes with connecting through listening. So what people have to do is up their accuracy rate in listening. And to do that, it requires uh, something that mindfulness people um, know, know, know about and talk about. It requires a sense of being present to what the other person is saying without running your own movie in your own mind <laughs> while they're talking or running your movie of judgment about what they're talking about. Yeah. You have to be present with a quiet mind, an open mind, a receptive mind to listen. Doesn't mean you have to give up your reality. It just means you have to suspend it while you're being present to crossing the bridge into the other person's world. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, hold on, hold on. My brain has gone three different directions here. First of all, uh, having spent the three months in this vow of silence, what I really became aware of even more than usual, I kind of guessed it was the case before, but I really kind of hunkered down into the factual reality behind how many people, when they're in a conversation, one-up the other person all the time. Well, I went to Florida last. Oh, I went to Florida, too. I did that. Oh, yeah, okay. And and I went water skiing. Oh, I went water skiing. And it's just, uh, there's there's no actual active listening happening. Uh, It it is, as you said, I think this is what you're talking. You know, you're running your own movie uh, over top of someone else's movie. Exactly. And and it's kind of, you you deflect and replace the other person with yourself. Yep. Or you become competitive and up the other person, as you were saying, or you don't respond at all. Yep. So the person then have, having no feedback, uh, their brain goes crazy because the brain needs feedback. So they will then talk louder or they'll quit. Yeah. Um, but listening is a very uh, interactive process. Yep. And what, what we do is a process called mirroring in which you say, let me see if I got that. And then you mirror back accurately and then check that I get it. <laughs> but, and then you say, is there more about that, which is the curiosity piece? Yeah. And when people are doing that, they have to focus, quiet in their own mind, and the other person becomes more coherent also when they're listened to in that sort of interactive way. Uh, what I have discovered is that there, there's a, a secret way that passive aggression can slip into the conversation and it's called mirroring. And when you mirror back with a little passive... So what I hear you saying is that you think I'm a big fat cow with an attitude. Is that what I'm hearing you say? You know, you get a little snippy with your mirroring. You know what I mean? Yeah, but that's not mirroring. <laughs> that's, mirror, that's not mirroring. That's what well, you said. That's manipulation. Yeah. Uh, that's, well, you know, and, and I really I really appreciate um, what Drew is saying. Am I interrupting? May I chime in no, this point? So I really appreciate what you're saying because you can mirror, but with an attitude, like you're saying. And um, the the there's one word, one word to be conscious of in every interaction when you're with your partner, and that word is safety. Hmm. And um, if it's safe for your partner, uh, if they feel safe when you're one-upping them, you know that might be intriguing for them. But it, it's if when you're one-upping them, 
you know, I mean, at least they're not boring. You know, you don't fall asleep. But if, if you feel put down, well, then it makes you, the other feel unsafe, and then they shut down, and then they've ruptured the relationship. The, there's no connection. And it's horrible that lifted up this one word, which is safety. And every interaction you have with your partner, the question is, are you landing safely on your partner with your words and your tone or not? And and that leads us to the um, the practice we began to do uh, when we were on the way to the divorce lawyer, the, I mean, the divorce court to finalize our divorce papers. <laughs> we, we were sort of desperate and we decided to try something new. And long story short, don't really have time to talk about it, but we began to realize we were coming across negatively to each other, and we decided to, every night before going to bed, ask, you know, what did we come across negatively? And if so, what was that? And we then changed our, our behavior hmm. when we were um, at, um, coming across negatively. We looked for a little micro minutes that we were negative, and we, we figured out a process and that process changed our marriage, saved our marriage. Wow, wow. Okay, um, Harville, let, let me ask you this question. And by the way, again, on, on the line here with Harville and Helen Hendricks, the website is harvilleandhelen.com. It's, it's, uh, uh, Drew, her, her last name is Helen Helen like Kelly Hunt. Uh, we have uh, separate last names. Oh, so, wow. I There's a big there's a big mistake. I am so sorry about that. Let me... It's fine. It's a compliment it's okay. to be um, when you use his last name. I'm thrilled to be married oh. to him. Wow! I just created a tender moment there. <laughs> um, that was some excellent mirroring. Yeah, uh, Harville. Let me let me ask you this question. Uh, a lot of what I'm hearing is you can push through anything if you just have the right attitude, but to change course in one's attitude. If we could all do that as easily as we make it sound, well, we would do it, and we would change, and we would impact the lives of those around us and our own lives. And if we could move from from a judgment to curiosity, and from from uh, criticism to safety, and you know, uh, condemnation to affirmation, if we could just do that, oh man, we, you know, no worries. But it's not that easy. And, and and let me throw out one other thing while I let you um, come back on this. Harville, you know, you're the, what is it, the left brain linear guy, and, and, and Helen, yep. you're the right brain, you know, emotive, and boy, I, I would imagine it'd be really, really hard for the, 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 um, the cognitive processor to, 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 I don't know, maybe... Do, do, do both parties, you've got to process this differently. So let's just, sorry, I think I'm polluting the question. Let me just stay with the question. The question is, uh, okay, fine, change your attitude. Well, how the heck do you do that? Well, we it, uh, thank you. That's a very good question. It gives us an opportunity to say something really critical and really counterintuitive. And it's also counter the learning theory that's in, uh, that's in the mental health field and in most of the culture which is change your mind, change your life. Uh, what we say is that's really misguided. You know, we don't mean that as a judgment, but it's that, it, that what you have to do is change your life, and that changes your mind. 
So we ask people to change their interactive space, uh, to um, engage in certain behaviors that are relational behaviors, um, and which has to do with um, reaching toward, reaching out, showing up, uh, being present to, um, listening, and so forth. And what happens with that is that your attitude changes. Uh, to give you a gross example, there was one, one that comes up is that there was a friend one time who had a dog, and he needed the dog, dog sat while he went on a trip for uh, about 10 days, and he asked a friend who was dog-averse, and didn't like dogs if he would keep the dog. And the guy said, well, I, you know, I just don't like dogs. And so he said, well, I really need you to do it. What the guy discovered who took the dog is that feeding the dog for 10 days um, changed his attitude toward dogs. And it was the being with that did it. So he wasn't asked to change his mind and love dogs. He was just asked to feed the dog. Hmm. And that changed his attitude. So what, that's what we see and, and what became the powerful uh, change agent in Imago was that we asked people in particular to engage in a different kind of conversation. So that's an interactive process. And as people engage in that interactive process, something happens inside them. So we see that change is initiated from the outside in, not from the inside out. Hold on. I just got, I want to sit in that for a second. Hmm. You know why I'm sitting in it? I'm just I'm just contemplating if I buy into it, if I get it, if I believe it. Hmm. Well, we, it's it's okay not to believe it, but it's we we followed the other path of subjectivity, is where you have to make changes, uh, and we know that our culture for the past 250 years has iconized the individual with an inner world, and the inner world has been uh, where everything happens and where all the change makes. We just didn't find that to be true in therapy, that when we help people change the tone and quality of their interactions with each other, the inner world changed. Because the inner world fundamentally consists of memory of things that happened outside. And if you go inside and try to change the inner world, really just working with memory or with the imagination, which is based on memory, what you need is new experience hmm. from the outside that you add to the inside, and that begins to change the configuration of memory. Boy, that really is helpful. That's that helps me grab onto that. Okay, so let me let me just ask you this, then, Harville or, or Helen. Maybe I'll just rock paper scissors this one, and you guys can decide who wants to answer it. But which which is more important? Oh, it's not a good question. This is not whenever you ask a question, which is more important? You know, you're setting yourself up for a both are important answer. Um, but I guess, I, you know, when it comes to healing memories and resolving past hurts versus creating new memories and and enjoying time together, do those things need to happen? Like, is that a synonymous? Well, both, they just work on both of them. Or can you, do you have to heal past issues first before you can start creating new uh, new connections, because if you don't heal the past stuff, you're creating new connections based on faulty foundations. What you know what I'm saying? Harvel, why don't you yeah. go ahead and answer? Okay, so um, thank you. Uh, the, the the progression for us is that uh, healing the past and ending the pain of the past has been also a kind of false hope, 
uh, that the field of psychotherapy has offered people, um, which is why therapy takes so long. Um, that when you, um, uh, and that you have to, in fact, begin to behave in the present in a relational way, which you can simply decide to do. I'm going to give this a chance, give this, um, and engage in this new experimental behavior. Uh, I'm going to show up. I'm going to uh, look in the eye of my partner while she's talking. I'm going to talk in a warm tone of voice. I'm going to mirror back when they talk. Um, you engage in that, you begin to create new memories. And what what is the case is that what you do is create a new, uh, Helen came up with a word uh, many years ago now that is the core word in Imago. You create a new space between, and that space between becomes filled with new memories. And if you, and you, as you continue to build those new memories, you build new neural pathways in the brain that become your new ways of interacting. The old highway doesn't go away, so the healing of memories um, and the and i.e. the disappearance of that, what happens is that the memories become discharged of energy when new memories uh, begin to provide you with alternative and successful ways hmm. to be in a relationship. And success means I simply know how to be safe for other people, and I know how to regulate my interactions with other people so that I don't create anxiety for them. Um, and if I can do that, then I'm in my prefrontal cortex. I'm behaving in a way that makes my environment safe. And my environment then usually will respond back with safety. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Helen, is separation a good idea? Or, you know, I've heard people say, well, no, it's, don't do that. Because one, if you physically separate, you're just going to end up going down the road of divorce anyway. So there's no point in even toying with the idea of reconciliation if you're going to physically separate? Or is a physical separation a good idea? So, Drew, here's how I would answer the question. There's a new way to help couples shift from conflict to connection. And the relational sciences have been around for 50 years, but only since the mid-1990s with the breakthroughs in neuroscience did helping couples shift from conflict to connection get a lot easier to teach. And there is a a group of relationship scientists who really know how to help couples shift from conflict to connection. And if you can get around any of them by any of those books, you don't have to separate. Because the process, you know, it's, it's so exciting um, that now the process is very simple. People, to have a good relationship, you have to use, number one, a structured conversation hmm. where people commit to taking turns, talking, and listening. So it's called, it's called the dialogue process. And if you, if you, if you learn to dialogue and take turns talking, um, people begin to feel safe, especially guys. They love it. <laughs> and then if you commit to zero negativity and start putting in affirmations, it, it's a simple way to shift. People begin to feel safe, and then they can address their issues without conflict. So the science is so simple. We believe that when a 
couple applies for a marriage license, it should be like a driver's license. There's a little manual a couple could read, and if they checked off and they could answer the questions, they then could get their license and, and learn to get married and not have a big wreck every other day, like Harville and I used to do all the time. <laughs> so um, it, there's, you know, go online. You can find the best-selling books. There's a cluster of us, and you don't have to separate. You know, it's interesting you brought in the driver's license idea. Uh, Harville, I've been, I've been processing something lately, and you tell me how nutty this is. Uh, there are, I think it's on the West Coast. Leave it, leave it to the left coast to come up with something like this. But I, I laughed at it at first, and now I'm thinking, oh, that's not such a bad idea. When they do their vows, they say, I love and commit to you for, you know, usually say for eternity or for life. And they say for five years, <laughs> for a term of five oh. <laughs> years. And and uh, and I, I, I'm starting to, to think and wonder, you know, if we st- saw marriage as something that really had to be intentionally renewed like a driver's license, Hmm. We had to. We had a choice to re up, you know. Instead of up, we're just we're in it. All right, that's it. Yep, take each other for granted, kind of a thing. Right. What What do you guys think of that? Is that? I mean, I I almost want to say something like, well, every marriage should take uh, every couple, you know, whatever, should take a month and be completely apart from each other every five years. What do you think of that? Um. Well, uh, those are great and, and interesting ideas, and I, I think that uh, if we think about the principle of indeterminacy that comes out of quantum mechanics, that you know there are all there are an infinite number of outcomes to any particular input, and that might work well. Uh, one of the things I would throw into the batch, however, is that. Um, Helena and I have worked on what we would call, in a spiritual sense, the covenantal marriage versus the transactional or contractual marriage. Right. And what we would ask people to commit to is a covenantal marriage, which means till death do us part. But every um, with 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 uh, with frequency, be sure that you renew your vows, and that means. Um, uh, learn from each other on a daily, weekly, monthly basis what's working for the relationship to be safe, because if it's not safe, it's not going to be very fun, very much fun. Mm -hmm. What do we need to do to keep this relationship safe and keep checking with each other about, uh, about that quality and how to improve it, increase it until one can predict that I'm safe in this relationship. But I think uh, Helen says to people in our workshops, come back next year. Uh, not because you didn't get it, but because you have to repeat it. And we know you're not going to practice it all that much, so come back and relearn it. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. But it'll take a month off. If you if you do something during a month off that's connectional, um, you know, like uh, thinking about each other or writing each other or doing something, uh, but, if you, but if you take a month off to think about, am I going to go back, yeah. then what you do is trigger anxiety. And when you go to anxiety, then you go to defenses, then you do all kinds of crazy things. Yeah, like go to Vegas. I get it. I get it. Um, well, I'm just trying to rage against what Dawkins called the anesthetic of familiarity. You know what I'm saying? And what we would say is great. If You know what? If you will stay curious with your partner, you will begin to discover things about your partner that you did not know. Because what happens with couples is that they 
I get a first impression of their partner, a first download, and they think that's it. <laughs> but the partner is an ever unfolding mystery, and Helen has added to our uh, lexicon, the Imago lexicon, the word wonder, that if you stay curious, you will not only just accumulate new awarenesses and new information, eventually this otherness of the other will emerge from your own projections and from your own constructions of them, you will see them in their pristine uh, otherness, and then they will become creatures of wonder, and they are an infinite possibility. So you can you can stay uh, up to up to that with curiosity, or um, and let the boredom go. Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt. See, I got it right. You got it, <sighs> Helen McKelly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. What, what a pleasure to have both of you on the show again. It really is. And I, I count, I mean, this sounds like a suck up here, and, and I guess it is in some ways, but I, you guys are, are a big deal, and you have had such an impact on so many. And for you to agree to come back, Harville, for you to come back a second time, first of all, I want to thank our mutual friend Bryn for making this connection. She's she's just been a, um, a wealth of resources for me. And for, for her to turn me on to you guys, just fantastic. Harvillandhelen.com is the website, harvillandhelen.com. Uh, we've got about one minute, Tim, about one minute left? If that. Okay. Uh, how, I want people to go to your website, but I want them, is, tell me there's a new something on the, is there a book coming out, uh, Helen? The book is called The Space Between. <sighs> okay. Boy, she was good, eh? Just concisely, t- here's the title. There it is. Uh-huh. She, she was being oh, succinct. And, and I could say one little quote of Martin Buber. Oh, love him. If we, if we have time. Yes, please. So Martin Buber says, if two people shift from uh, looking at their partner, like, what my, can my partner do for me? And instead, ask if they can serve their partner. What is it my partner needs from me? And if two people do that at the same time, the universal energies of love begin to flow through the two people and into the space between, that God takes residence in the space between. And we've written uh, a small sort of funky book about it, (laughs) because we too believe that um, the space between two people is sacred space. And this is a funky book that will make you laugh, it's silly, uh, silly and holy have the same etymology. It's very important to be um, silly in your relationship. Really well said. Man, you guys are good. Thank you so much to both of you. I hope you have a great weekend, you two. Thank you, Harville, Helen, thank you. Thank you, Drew.